0: And welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward. Whether it be on the
1: land, in the water, in the kitchen or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture. And we want you to know who they are, their views and their big ideas. We're coming to you today from Camaragal land, and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Hi everyone, it's Lucy here with you today, and welcome back to another episode of Food, Views and Big Ideas. Joining me in the studio today is Serena Zip, the owner of Rocky Point Aquaculture. Located on Moreton Bay, halfway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, the business is a pioneering success story, cultivating award-winning sustainable cobia and groper for the seafood industry. But success hasn't come easily. In 2016, disaster struck the family business when their thriving $1.5 million prawn farming operation was devastated by an outbreak of the notorious white spot disease. Their prawn crop was obliterated in their hatchery once a lifeline for other growers had to shut down. So they took a daring gamble, venturing into cultivating two new fish species and emerged as industry trailblazers. Serena, welcome to the studio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Oh, it's such a pleasure. There's there's so much I want to cover about your journey to where you are today with Rocky Point Aquaculture. But before we get to that, I thought, let's start with the history of this family-owned business. Where and how did it all start?
2: So the um, family have been on the land for 150 years, originally pioneers of sugarcane growing in that area. It's the only green belt left between Brisbane and the Gold Coast that's undeveloped. Um, Basically, a boatload of um, German immigrants came onto some swampland and put irrigation systems in and started to um, industrially cultivate sugarcane and then built what is still now the smallest sugar mill in Australia.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So not just aquaculture where you are today, but started off with, with sugarcane farming.
2: Correct. That's the origins of it. And aquaculture was the
1: diversification, basically. And so when did the family head into aquaculture? Um, around
2: 1990, in earnest, um, certainly, you know, there was a feel that the heydays of sugarcane growing were over. Uh, industrial giants like Brazil could do it cheaper and therefore there needed to be uh, a pivot, before that word became famous in in COVID, to um, a new future in agriculture if they were to continue on the land as they had been.
1: So, was that something that they were completely new to, or was there a reason for heading into aquaculture?
2: Just completely new, something that was a bit of a passion because of the proximity to water. So, the farm itself, though landlocked, is only less than a kilometre away from Wharton Bay Marine Park and from the Logan River. Also, ideally situated to reach markets, only 30 minutes to Brisbane and Gold Coast Airport. There were, and also, being where we are apparently the least temperature variant range in the country. So in terms of um, growing seafood, you know, in a less risky way, there was certainly a lot of things going for it, as well as definitely proximity to town, being able to access really good quality staff and being able to do research with scientists and universities.
1: And so the family headed into prawn farming? Yes. And particularly why prawns? Was there a reason for that species?
2: Um, as it was with the fish, there had been quite a bit of work done by the research community, seeded by uh, the government to start with, and so if you can't get a breeding program, you pretty much can, don't have a start. So that certainly, there was a start, if you like, and then as the industry rapidly developed in um, southeast Queensland, then there was a lot more investment by the industry into fine-tuning the um research and so we you know said we wanted to be the chicken of the sea we wanted to be able to reliably produce know exactly how many number of days it would take to grow the animal get it to market and it's certainly very close to that before white spot hit
1: right so you had what 25 26 years of experience in prawn farming and you'd built that business up can you take us back to that Pivotal moment in 2016 when the prawn farming operation was was wiped out by the white spot disease. How did you cope with such a devastating setback?
2: So the first detection had been in November 2016. We were, in fact, the very last farm to get the disease. And part of the measures that we deployed. Which we thought would successfully stave off the disease. In fact, then bore us in good stead for the subsequent fish operation. But essentially, with the initial news that disease had hit the system, we basically closed our waterway. So we didn't put any water back out into the ocean. We didn't take any back in. And we started to learn again how to basically clean our own water by cycling it through our own properties. And so you can imagine as each farm went down, there was an increasing sense of dread that it's there seemed to be a sense of inevitability about it. But the longer we were able to keep going, the more the hope grew that we would escape it in some fashion. So although it was obviously less surprising than the first detection, it was nevertheless still as devastating. And I think we didn't sleep for three or four days after that, just dealing with the consequences and negotiating government and dealing with the animals on site as well.
1: And so why the decision not to go back to prawn farming? Like what what was the situation? Like, why did you decide to to pivot into farming a whole different species, two different species?
2: So in essence the major consequence of the disease outbreak on all the farmers in our river system is that because we have international obligations the federal government closed us down for 2 years. So we had to do something or we had with the staff, with the property and we thought that It would be a good time to try fish farming as we always had wanted to do but never had enough time to. There was also a real sense of I'm a real believer in respecting history and there were only two countries in the world that had not had this particular prawn disease. Everywhere else the disease pretty much had travelled, you know, a long way within the space of five years. So my sense of feel was that despite the best efforts of the government to eradicate it, we had let the genie out of the bottle and there was no return. And it would only be a matter of time before the disease hit our river system as well as spread. And in fact, that's what's happened.
1: Right. So yeah, it was thinking about what the future might hold and working out how to make yourself resilient against that potential continuation of outbreak.
2: So, yeah, ostensibly, even though it seemed almost mad to start again and to take a complete risk growing two species that we'd never done before and fish, not prawns, uh, to me, on the balance of probabilities, I was almost more certain that there would be a reemergence of the disease. And, you know, were it to happen again, there would be no assistance from the government and we would bear the full cost of the clean-up and the eradication, and that's substantial.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. So, really, gosh, facing the possibility of of losing almost everything twenty five, twenty six years worth of work and legacy that must have been such a, a daunting prospect. How did you How did you stay motivated and resilient in the face of all that adversity that That feels like a huge mountain to climb.
2: I think there were two prime motiva- motivators. One was our staff. The- most of them had joined us as graduates. And so we'd had them for a very, very long time. I know almost every member of their family. I've been to many of their weddings. My children have been involved in their weddings. Uh And pleasingly, two of them, you know, we have next gen now working for us as well. So they have their sons working on the property with them. So you know, how could I look these people in the eye and just say, look, I'm taking a check from the government and I'm going, see you later. There was very much a sense of how would we feel to just leave 150 year history under these circumstances? And the other one was the opposite driver. And frankly, it was the motivation to, to be around for long enough to see that justice was done and that we would, um, and as you know, we, the farmers and other people in the supply chain are now in a class action, still in the federal government. Very much that sense of justice and, you know, let's fix this so it doesn't happen again, not just for us, but for other prime producers in the country. So there were two Senate inquiries. There was a lot of media, a lot of media. And, you know, it was getting the word out there that we can do better and we need to try and find a balance as a country between our trade obligations as well as protecting what we have here, which is in many respects so unique as a food production country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And were you heavily involved in that yourself from a class action and, and Senate hearing perspective?
2: Yes, I was. Uh, my kids recall seeing me at the kitchen table when they went to bed and then still at the kitchen table when they wake up for school the next morning for um, quite a long time after
1: that. That's incredible. What an inspiring approach to an incredible challenge that you were faced with. And and then, as you said, so you took a a pretty huge gamble. You repurposed all of your infrastructure and equipment. Why the species that you headed into uh, cultivating? Why cobia and groper?
2: Well, as it was with uh, the prawns, basically research had been done by the Queensland government into the breeding aspects. Um, of these fish and um, they were suited temperately to where we are and we believed that, you know, there was a market for it and that potentially we'd be able to grow it quite comfortably and fingers crossed, you know, at the same time as we were able to increase our production. So certainly there were no guarantees, but at least we knew we had a starting point. There were researchers close to us who knew how to breed them that we could access And we believed that there was a strong market out there, albeit that two novel species that really are not the grouper is a um, protected species. So it's not commercially caught, but known in Asia as the Rolls Royce of all fish and hoping to honestly expose that to a Western palate and see it used in very different ways.
1: So you've got these two new species and and as you said, not really very familiar um, to the market of people you wanted to sell them to, i.e. chefs and consumers. How did you go about marketing and promoting these species? Like where did you start? How did you first put the fish into the market and, and put forward the benefits of these new species and what they offered? I guess, first of all, chefs, is that where you started with the industry?
2: Yes. So I rang a friend, (laughs) <laughs> and said, I know nothing, nothing about selling fish. Uh, we'd had an ex- export office in Japan for our prawns, uh, but certainly, you know, uh, once we knew we actually had a crop to harvest and something to sell, then it was time to go and get some help. And that's when I was introduced by a mutual friend to, she's known as the fish
1: girl. Ah, Uma.
2: Um, Uma. <laughs> Uma and I remember bringing her on to the farm with our mutual friend. And she said afterwards that she had never seen fish that fresh and she was quite excited. And so really I was in her hands because she's an ind- industry veteran and she had actually ironically previously marketed the very first cobia to be grown in Australia with her previous employer. So, uh, very much. We were growing together as two women in business at the infancy and and, um, it's been an exciting ride. We're very strong women as well, so some of our discussions are strong, (laughs) but there's ultimately the respect for each other and the journey that we've both been on to try and achieve what we are trying to do in business. So that's where we started and the strategy was very much, you know, put it in front of influencers, people who you respect will give you the honest opinion. And obviously, you cannot imagine the terror, Lucy, when we first caught the fish ourselves and cooked it up because, you know, I said to my staff, well, I I can't lie. So it's horrible. We're in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) It it passed my home cook test and then um, went to the ultimate test, which is who is my mother, who's an absolutely superb cook. And also brutally Singaporean, so pulls no punches at
1: all. <laughs> Tells you exactly what she thinks.
2: Yeah. So once it passed the mum test, and um, I was pretty confident it was going to do pretty well out there. I also tried to destroy it in the kitchen, basically. <laughs> uh, also gave it to some acquaintances who I know are not so great in the kitchen, and just asked them to try their best to destroy it. So there were some home tests, if you like, but the ultimate test was really putting in front of the people who really know what produce looks like and. Just asking them for their opinion.
1: So, from the early days of cultivating the fish to now, have you had to, has much changed in the way that you cultivate it to meet feedback and, and Im- improve the quality of what you're doing?
2: Yes. The quality, is, the quality is probably the thing that we haven't had to change in the sense that we've always brain spiked every fish individually. And that's something we learned from the Japanese a very, very long time ago, except with prawns. We use ice, so we fish, we just had to um, adopt our methods. But the general principles around harvesting seafood so it arrives in the best possible condition, those principles were known to us already. Uh, That's why we were able to successfully export. Uh, It was more about, you know, if you imagine, this is one big science experiment. We grow a fish to one size, we put it out there and we say, what do you think? Some chefs said, I love it. Others said, I like it a lot bigger. Others a lot smaller. So then that's how you refine and develop it. And then and then we start to see chefs really play with it. And almost so for example, Josh Nyland does uh kingfish ham, basically a cobia ham at Christmas time. And so that's a very specific size fish for a very specific limited time of the year. Um, things like that. So that certainly we've a lot of very interactive feedback with the um with the chefs determining even market by market who wants what size at what time of the year it's been that intricate and really laying layering it down um so that i almost can tell you now well what melburnians like to eat at what time of the year and what size it is and and how it will be prepared
1: yeah so you've really, I mean, you've really had to get out there with, with Uma, the fish girl, who we've had on our podcast before, to really get to understand the the market nuances like city to city, state to state, which it is all very different and variable. But, you know, with Josh Nyland using your fish, you've obviously managed to influence the influencers, which is, which is absolutely amazing. But it's not just about the quality of the fish. Fish Sustainability is at the heart of of what you do. So tell us a little bit about the focus you place on farming sustainably and how you came to the methods that you use now to do that.
2: So going back to the days um, post-disease outbreak, and we had previously done some world-first trials with CSIRO and with some groups around the universities in terms of what we call basically recirculating water where we basically take water in once from the ocean and during the course of of the growing season, we would just clean it ourselves by running them through a series of mechanical and biological processes and then basically under the terms of our licence. So we are in the dirtiest river system in Queensland. In fact, the quality of the water we take in is actually dirtier than the quality of the water that we use to put back out. And unlike... Other farmers who can, you know, basically silently leach contaminants back into the system, our farms all have a pipe where you can actually go and very specifically test what your impacts on the environment are. So we are undoubtedly under the most stringent license conditions, I would say, in the world because of that. So... That work was initially done so that the farmers, in fact, on the Logan River could actually gain a permanent licence from the state government. So during the days after the outbreak, we knew that, you know, if we had any chance of succeeding it, we had to stop taking water in from the ocean, but it also meant then we had to clean our own water clean enough to be able to reuse it. So given a chance to start again with a clean slate with the fish, And bearing in mind, you know, the biosecurity risks as well, because these fish also have their own particular diseases that wipe out the entire crop overnight. We um, decided that we, we would do it this way so that we would not be subject to the um, environment in such a risky way again. So that's really the start of it. And um, the means of achieving it successfully are still being worked out and being evolved, but certainly. It was um, a pillar that the staff and I had said that we wanted to really be able to establish given the chance to start again afresh.
1: Yeah. So yeah, you were really offered a um, quite an unique opportunity, I guess, to sort of stop and and reflect and be able to start again and bringing all these considerations into play. And where do you take your lead from? Like where do you look to for guidance and and assistance in how you continue to improve your methods both in cultivating the fish and in your sustainability considerations? So
2: Really, for me, there's there's a few key things and, you know, it's about which lever you can pull where with the available technology. And I've always been a great believer and we've really had the benefit of collaboration with, honestly, people cleverer than than us. I, I'm the only non-scientist in the organisation, so I say I'm always the dumbest person in the room in a staff meeting and I'm more than happy with that. I'm guided by, you know, incredibly enthusiastic, um, passionate, you know, young scientists who have come on board as well, our recent graduates. So universities, and they know that we're a very willing research partner as well um, as governments. So typically a research project will involve ourselves, a university and um, state or federal government. And, you know, they centre around basically the obvious things like feed, contaminants, um, electricity, so those are things where there's some technologies out there. So, for example, you know, using floating solar platforms to fuel the aeration. That the science is not settled on that yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Watch this space.
2: Yes, and um, using oysters as a biofilter. So we currently have oysters in there, which I'm really hoping will succeed because I love to think that I'll have my private oyster supply.
1: Oh, so they'll <laughs> just they, will they be for commercial uh, offer? At this moment, we are
2: trawling a few things. We are actually working on that with the Queensland government and with the rest rest of the oyster industry. We are the sentinel in terms of there's some disease trials going on there that theoretically if the disease were to hit everybody else, we should be immune. It will help the oyster farmers answer some questions about how to get around this disease. But secretly, obviously, I am hoping that we'll be able to – grow a lot of oysters there's also potentially a carbon offset aspect as well and for me that's probably one of the blue sky things which really excite me not so much the monetary value from being able to sell it as a carbon credit but if you think that if we were able to extrapolate the results results of this research if it pans out the way we think it may then you know pacific communities potentially could be paid to grow oysters and because they're a subsistence community, then they can actually then obviously feed themselves with that as well. So for me, that's those are things that really keep me quite excited. So um over Christmas I was in Amsterdam and I had the honor of speaking, spending two days with the world expert basically on this and um, It was incredible what I learned from him and the, you know, learnings. So I'm really grateful and the University of Queensland really helped me organize that particular meeting. So there's some principles around that, some projects that we're trying to design up now, which will involve really measuring what that they can possibly do, not just oysters, but a few other things. But we're starting off with oysters.
1: Oh, that's so exciting. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> You're really at the forefront of some incredible, you know, research and and pioneering opportunities that, as you said, could really change the opportunity for communities to be sustainable. That's, it's incredible. So last year, Rocky Point Agriculture was named the delicious Harvey Norman Produce Awards, Producer of the Year, which is the ultimate uh, trophy. And as project manager of the awards, I had the wonderful job of picking up the phone and telling you that you'd won that award. And I'll never forget the the disbelief in your voice, followed very quickly by incredible excitement when I when I told you. Winning such a prestigious national award just five years after, you know, what was a tremendously challenging setback is is really quite an achievement. What do you think sets you apart and, and what led to, to you achieving this incredible award?
2: I'm not sure anything sets me apart other than this ridiculous desire to never give up, sometimes to my own detriment. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I think we all like to think that, you know, there's a why in our work and there's a purpose and and to me – money is the least motivator. And in fact, you know, one of the sessions I sat in at London Business School last year basically said there is a point where it, there is enough pay. And certainly the studies coming out now about millennials say that, you know, they're going to be more drawn in the next 10 years to companies which are not just about profitable sustainability in the ac- economic sense, but also in the environmental sense. So, For me, it's not so much about leaving a personal legacy, but I've been placed in a situation where I may be able to make a difference. And, you know, my children grew up absolutely loving the ocean, fishing, surfing, diving, and I would like to think that my grandchildren will have exactly the same opportunity to go and see the most incredible places on earth under the sea because I've had that opportunity and it would be just gorgeous if they could do that too.
1: I think what sets you apart, personally, I think, is your determination and your drive, and and your never give up spirit. And I think that's definitely what's put Rocky Point Aquaculture at the forefront of what it's doing now. But what has what did the Delicious Award mean for the business? Did it have any effects?
2: It uh, it well and truly put us on the map. So this year, nearly twelve months on, we are national for the first time, and we've just started exporting and. Thanks to Instagram, which I had to be bullied into, you mean, <laughs> by Uber, <laughs> that, gen- that genuinely, you know, is your, your direct line to chefs and to decision makers as to what you do and why you do it. And, you know, another really valuable lesson I learned from London Business School was don't sell, tell your story. And certainly I know that a lot of chefs who are resistant to the idea of an aquaculture pro. Product because of what they had seen and read in the media about how it may have been done elsewhere. If I can get them on the farm and show them what we do, uh, they, you know, I've not had one leaf with an altered opinion of how it could be done sustainably and the quality of the product that come out, can come out of that process. There's obviously, there's definitely a trade off. I could be making a lot more money. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But, um, It would be at the cost of the environment. And what's been so wonderful is meeting like-minded chefs and people in the industry who also have the same values and say, we want to leave the ocean a better place when we leave the planet. And we're going to also choose to make less money because we could buy fish that's a lot cheaper than yours, but um, this is sustainable and we want to support this.
1: That's amazing. Just going back to a point you made earlier about yourself and Uma, two women women going out to sell these unknown species to uh, chefs who are, you know, can be an intimidating group to approach with a new uh, product or ingredient. What has your experience of, of being female leaders in the Australian seafood industry been like? What, what is female representation like and how have you found being a female in the industry? Has it been tough? Has it been exciting? Have you been accepted? What, what's your experience been?
2: Generally. And I hate to stereotype it, but it, this has been the general experience. The the older the gentleman, the uh, more traditional the response is. Uh, so certainly there have been some, I myself have sat on some boards where it was very clear I was not welcome, which added to my enjoyment of the experience actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and your determination to be there. <laughs> Well, a lot
2: of these were ministerial appointees as well. So, you know, I was asked. I I didn't ask to be there. But certainly, as we know now, you know, the average Australian, what the average Australian looks like has changed dramatically over the last few decades. And women in business also, we account, I think, for the largest growth in small business owners now. So obviously we're here to stay and it's a case of, encouraging each other. And I think Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And that's certainly my belief.
1: I love that. I think, um, like I said, it, it can be quite intimidating going out to an industry that has certain uh, expectations and traditions. And and I think um, you and Uma have certainly blown it out of the water with what you've achieved with Rocky Point Aquaculture. Which leads me, I guess, to wonder what's next? Like what's on the horizon for Rocky Point Aquaculture? Is there anything you can tell us about that chefs, industry and consumers can look forward to in the future for the business?
2: We have a new fish that we will be unveiling around January or February. Wow. Uh, And it's very pretty. I'm not allowed to say anything more. (laughs) (laughs) But you will be seeing it in limited numbers on restaurant tables around the country. So it's once again a case of, you know, um, let's see what else people would like, what we can, what we think we can grow. And I like to not have all my eggs in one basket as well. So I have a white blessed fish, I have the copia that's only available seasonally. I have a fish that's, you know, high end available year round. And so I think it's about finding a fish for every market that I could possibly hit. We are looking to also expand export as well. We've had extremely strong export interests from Milan, from California and from Canada, and we simply just cannot produce enough fish for what's out there at the moment and gearing up for export is a completely different ball game again and we had always said that for the first few years we wanted to focus on being able to get our breeding program to where we need it to be so we could you know reliably breed these animals ourselves and also getting the basics right and getting the quality right before we you know attempted to do anything else because in the export market you get one shot at it and it's going to be done well from the beginning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think those three particular markets have shown interest? You said Milan, Canada and?
2: California. California. Yeah.
1: Why those three markets, do you think? What, what's been, the, the it, what's piqued their interest?
2: The, well, ironically, uh, and actually we already started, uh, we're in Hong Kong and Singapore now. We've sent trials to Tokyo. Ironically, it's Aussie chefs who have used the product here and who have gone, you know, far and wide and asking for the product there, but also the power of Instagram, you know, people really seeing what we're doing here. It's unique. It's high-end. It's high-end at the moment, and it's going to be for a while until we can basically, for one of a better word, industrialise in terms of, you know, bring down our costs, and that will only occur when we grow a lot more fish than we currently are. So, being exposed to those chefs by incredible power of Instagram, <laughs> thank you Uma. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, influencers like Josh and Island. I mean, you know, this year we made our Australian Open debut with Josh and Island, and and singing the queue for forty five minutes. You know, queuing for the group uh, gravy roll was just such a thrill, and just doing box pox, you know, anonymously with the punters. That was incredible.
1: Oh, that really is incredible. And yeah, we know many, many chefs that are using your beautiful fish. And I think, you know, all the recognition and success that you have earned has been incredibly well, well deserved. It's such an inspiring journey. And we can't wait to hear more about what happens on the uh, oyster research front. But also we'll be keeping our eyes and eyes tuned for the announcement of the new fish coming soon. I hear you have a minister waiting for you, so I'm not going to keep you. <laughs> too much longer but thank you uh, so much for joining us serena it's been a real pleasure chatting to you today we love what you guys do and we very much look forward to to seeing what's ahead
2: thank you lucy thanks for having me
1: well thank you so much for tuning in
0: with us today we really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation you'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes We have some extraordinary guests lined up and we'd love for you to join us again. Please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd love feedback, good or bad, or perhaps a guest you'd love to hear from. Please just let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to, and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of our Straight to the Source community. At straighttothesource.com.au dot forward slash community. Until next time.